Welcome to Scientific American's Science Talk, posted on October 15th, 2014. I'm Steve Mursky. And joining me from our Washington, D.C. Bureau is Scientific American Senior Editor Josh Fishman. Hi, Josh. Hi, Steve. Josh, tell me what we are about to hear. Well, Steve, on August 18th of this year, I was part of a panel at the University of California, San Diego, discussing the latest advances in nanoscience. And the panel brought together three eminent nanotechnologists to talk about their latest work. And it was done under the auspices of the BBC World Service and their radio show, The Forum. And you're on the panel as uh, obviously not a a nanotechnologist. You're the science journalist there to try to help provide some perspective and background? That's right. I'm there because I've been covering nanoscience for a number of years, and uh, I'm the one who can explain that when you say nano, you mean a billionth of a meter. That's a very important point. It is, because you're getting really, really small. And the point of the panel was to talk about what you can do when you get that small. The panel included uh, Shana Kelly, who is a biochemist at the University of Toronto, who's been developing nanoscale diagnostic chips that can detect pathogens in the blood. There was also Yamuna Krishnan from the University of Chicago, who makes experimental machines out of filaments of DNA and gets them to sail into the little crannies of living cells. And we had Benjamin Bratton, who is a theorist at the University of California at San Diego, and he's been working on the concept of nanoskin, which ranges from tattoos to paint on a wall embedded with sensors that can detect environmental changes like, say, smoke or uh, a chemical attack. The panel was moderated by the BBC journalist Bridget Kendall. Excellent. So uh, without any further ado, Josh, as, as I think it was Steve Martin who said, let's get small. What's the smallest thing you can think of? Smaller than anything you can see with a naked eye. Take a strand of human hair, for example, and imagine splitting it crossways a hundred thousand times. You can't see it or even visualize it with the mind's eye, but you've entered the realm of the nanoscale, where one nanometer is one billionth of one meter. And this is the world that we want to explore on the forum today. We've come to San Diego in Southern California, and in front of me is an audience, including many scientists who work in this area, the increasingly important field of nanotechnology. They've come from all over the world to join the Royal Society of Chemistry meeting challenges in nanoscience to pool expertise on the latest research, and I'll be asking for their thoughts a little later. But first, I'm pleased to welcome to the stage here in the ballroom at the University of California, San Diego, Professor of Biochemistry at the University of Toronto in Canada, Shauna Kelly, Associate Professor at the National Centre for Biological Sciences in Bangalore, India, Yamuna Krishnan, the Director of the Centre for Design and Geopolitics here at the University of California, San Diego, Benjamin Bratton, and Senior Editor at the Scientific American magazine, Josh Fishman. (laughs) 
Now, the words nanotechnology, nanoscience, nanoscale have become part of everyday speech, but the question is, what does nano really mean? And let's focus on scale to start with. Can each of you here on the panel, from your perspective, tell me, is there a point beyond the things that you deal with, think about, work with, just become too tiny to be able to deal with them? Yamuna, you make tiny nano machines out of synthetic DNA to insert into living cells. What, what do you think? So I think I'm working at the limit of nanotechnology because a filament of DNA is actually two nanometers thick, any less, and you would start getting into the angstrom scale, and that would be out of the realm of nanotechnology. Angstrom scale, what does that mean? That's a tenth smaller uh, at the level of atoms than the nanoscale, which is one nanometer to roughly 500 nanometers. Okay, Shana, what about you? Your nano-enhanced electronic chips can test for harmful pathogens with unprecedented speed. What do you think about this question of scale? Well, I think it's true that there will be a scale that's too small for nanotechnologists to work with. We only have so many tools that allow us to visualize what we're working with, and if they can't resolve the structures that we're looking at, then there's nothing to see. So that means it's, it's limited by the tools that you have to look at them? In part, yeah. So it could change? It could change, absolutely. Josh, what do you think? You're a science journalist who's been following this field for many years. Do you think this is a, a moving scale, the nanoscale? I think it is a moving scale. I agree with Shauna that it really depends on the tools that are available to look at what you want to move around on this very small scale. Richard Feynman, the Nobel Prize winning physicist in 1959, kind of kicked off the idea of nanotechnology with his lecture saying, there's plenty of room at the bottom. And that was 40 years, 35 years before anybody invented anything, any microscope that could move these atoms around. And so... You know, we're continually thinking very far ahead of the tools that we have available, and the tools eventually catch up. Benjamin, you're you're in the business of thinking. (laughs) You're a a designer and a theorist, and you've worked in nanotechnology, not as a scientist, but more from the point of view of being a designer and an artist. Hmm. What do you think about this? Well, as a designer, I work with the nanoscience and nanoengineering that others have accomplished, usually working with solved science And so the way I think about scale and work with it is less about what exactly is going on at the nanoscale than how that might affect what's going on at much larger scales, the scale of the human body or urban scale or scale of ecology, and how it is that we can think about the nanoengineering at an infrastructural scale. So for me, it has more to do with how big it can go rather than how small it can go. So thinking that bridges the very, very small and sometimes the very, very big. We'll hear more about that in a minute. But let's let's bring in the audience here with us in San Diego. I wonder, those of you who are here with us, how many of you work with nanotechnology or in nanoscience? Let's have a show of hands. Who's in this field? Okay, a forest of hands has gone up. Not absolutely everybody, but a lot of people. And we, we're interested to get your views on this question of scale. What do you think it is that sets the boundaries at the lower end of the nanoscale where nanotechnology stops? Yes. I'm Nathan Janeski. I'm a professor here in chemistry and biochemistry at UC San Diego. I think there are a lot of chemists here who would say that when you probe below a nanometer, you start actually doing chemistry. And so there are a lot of tools for probing those kinds of bonds. In fact, to small molecule chemists, nanoscale materials are huge. 
and uh, intractable precisely because of that. So the, the biggest problems in characterization come at the long nanometer scales as you approach microns. Okay. Another contribution from the floor. How does these thoughts relate to your research? Yes. My name's Craig Hawker, and I'm a professor of materials at uh, University of California, Santa Barbara. I would like to remind everyone that nanotechnology has been around for a long time. Medieval artisans used nanotechnology for stained glass windows. They didn't understand the atomic or the molecular rationale behind what they were doing. We now appreciate and understand cause and effect, but nanotechnology per se has been persistent for a long, long time. Thank you. That brings me on to something I wanted to ask you, Josh, which is um, it's very hard to imagine the nano level. It's easier to grasp the way that it affects our lives, but just for people who are just trying to imagine exactly what it is, nanotechnology, can you sketch out the range of tools and products that we are now beginning to understand and manipulate and benefit from? Sure. Carbon nanotubes that make up racing bicycle frames, anti-fouling paints for buildings and for boats, golf balls that fly longer when you hit them, which I know is something that everybody's very happy about, tennis rackets made of carbon that hit a ball straighter. This all sounds like it's a bunch of leisure activities. Sunscreen. Um, So I think that that's the consumer products realm. And then what is probably more interesting, building diagnostic devices that are just a few nanometers big that can sense changes in molecules, which can signify the difference between health and disease, or that can form the paint on the walls that can detect a fire. Well, let's hear a bit more about that and and come to your research, Yamuna, because you work in the field of genetic biology and medicine, You work with nuclear bases, which are the building blocks of DNA. And in your lab in Bangalore in India, you knit them together uh, into what amounts to a synthetic strand of DNA, I suppose, sort of tiny biological nanomachines, which you then dispatch into the nooks and crannies of cells. Let's start with scale. A strand of DNA is how small? It's two nanometers thick. So how do you actually see and work with things at that level? So you use special microscopes. These are called atomic force microscopes, which detect the object sort of by feeling it rather than uh, using the wavelength of light because many of these objects are smaller than the wavelength of light, which means they cannot be seen. So they have to be visualized by somehow feeling them with these atomically thin or atomically thick needles. That's one way. The other way is to use... Uh, methods of spectroscopy to sort of visualize their structure. But essentially what our lab does is to use DNA like wool uh, and knit it into various shapes, just the way that you can take a piece of wool and knit it into very, very different kinds of shapes like a sweater or a sock. Using the same piece of wool, what is the difference is where you make the connections, which points are connected to each other. And in the same way, using DNA, you can change the connection points uh, by joining together different domains. And you can define a domain by the sequence of nuclear bases that you have on this filament. 
and in this way by adding different strands of DNA in the same in a solution, uh, heat it and cool it in a specific way, you can get it to fold and knit itself into these very interesting shapes that form the body of a machine that we then get to sort of sail into a living cell, a very specific environment inside of a living organism and then report to us the concentration of some interesting chemical in that place to uh, tell us a little bit about the health and disease state of that cell. So can you give an example? What might this little probe be telling us about this cell? So our very first attempt was to measure something very fundamental. The most fundamental form of chemistry that you can think of is actually the acidity level of the environment. And so we've made a pH sensor And this is a small DNA device that can go very specifically into a very defined microenvironment of a living cell and report to us what uh, the pH or the acidity level is in that environment. So why would this be important, right? Because if you look at something like the lysosome, it's a certain little compartment inside of a cell, if the pH is not exactly the value that it's supposed to be, it results in several different disorders. And I think you have now about 50 different types of rare disorders that are called lysosomal storage disorders that are all related to Uh, altered pH in that environment. So now you have the basis to be able to pick up these diseases possibly earlier uh, rather than later. Benjamin, you were saying that you think about how the nano world can be related to the human world. Listening to Yamina, what what are your thoughts of the application for this sort of thing? It's tremendous. You know, we can talk about machines or devices, something that we make at the nano scale, but like any technology, it's always working in relationship to other technologies. You know, one of my, the design interests that we have, that we're working a lot, is the relationship between nanotechnology and Internet of Things, and particularly the way in which nanotechnologies can function as sensors of events that are happening in the environment, or perhaps on a body or in a body, and how that sensing becomes information, which can then be made part of a local or, or larger computing environment, which would link nanotechnology to cloud computing in general. And so, on the one hand, we see a lot of interest in this around what's called quantified self, of how it is that you could measure, say, the athletic performance of, a, of one person. But this starts to get really interesting when it's not just one body or one person, but it's a whole population of people, the kind of data that can be generated, the kind of tools that we can imagine and that we can make that are sensing something happening from one body, but then also affecting it back as well. So Yamuna uh, is talking about sensors at the DNA level, right? And you're talking about something else, because you, you yeah. have got involved in a particular project, haven't you, called NanoSkin, Nano which is also about sensors. It is, yeah. And this, the, all the nanoscience that this, this project was based is all based on the work of Dr. Joseph Wang here at UCSD uh, as well. And it sort of starts with a not really with a scientific question, then more with a, a design or experiential question. And that is, you know, with cinema and photography, we figure out how to augment or transform the way in which we saw. With audio technologies, we are able to transform the sensing of how we hear. But our largest sensory organ is our skin. And the ways in which it might be possible to reimagine or redesign how it is that skin senses the world around it is sort of the larger area of investigation. And so Joseph's laboratory came up with this inks 
that we're able to sense the uh, particulate matter of chemicals that are commonly used in IEDs, explosive devices. And we began working with them and thinking about them, and they had done these really interesting temporary tattoos that would allow for these sorts of sensing at the level of the skin. But we also came up with this idea that, you know, paint is just ink at a larger scale. And so if you use this as the, the skin of a building, the skin of an environment, then the environment itself can be a sensor. So it's a difference between sensing and sensation, perhaps, right, for people. You know, I find yeah. this really creepy, this idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that the whole building's well, going to be out good. there That's tattooed yeah. with sensors, which yeah. could sense us as we go past. That's what you're talking about, right? It is, yeah. And I think like any good design, if we're not quite sure of whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, we might be onto something interesting. Uh, the, so there, there's absolutely are, you know, both positive and negative use cases to be derived from this for sure. But that's what makes it interesting as research. Well, that, I, I wanted to pick that up with you, yeah. Yamina, because um, census, you can see how these sorts of little knitted DNA could be useful in detecting disease or um, presumably for all sorts of things, like, for example, treatment for cancer, potentially. But what about the dangers? What about the potential health issues from these artificial DNA strands, because they may be a means for gaining information, but what are they doing? For example, if you, if you get to the point of synthetic DNA being inserted into the human body, how do you know what happens when it accumulates? So uh, that's a very interesting question, okay? And I just want to place that in perspective with any new chemical that comes out as a drug, okay? It also has its own side effects. That doesn't mean it's bad. But I think it's very important to proceed with a tone of cautious optimism. It's very important to understand that when you're dealing with DNA, you are dealing with something that can evoke what's called an immune response, where you could have an allergic reaction, so to speak, from the body. But then you also have these sort of side effects with other chemicals as well. Now, the special thing about DNA, especially when you're sort of triggering something called the immune system, uh, is that, you know, it's not a bad thing. If you can learn how to control that immune response, so you could use this for immunotherapy, for example, and that's what many immunotherapeutics are doing. They are tuning the immune response of the body where you can get cells to kill themselves in a programmed way. So you might even be able to harness the immune system at the same time deliver a drug. Now, I'm not saying that DNA is going to be the one answer to every single question, but I think it could be a very powerful answer to some things. The key word, it seems to me, there is harness. Yes. That you can still keep hold of the reins. Josh, what do you think? The thing that's been picked up by the popular press and also by science fiction writers is the autonomous or semi-autonomous nature of nanotechnological devices or treatments that, Bridget, you said harness, you know, that you can get hold of it, and but if they're autonomous... You just nudge them maybe and they go their own way. They, and where you know, do they go? Maybe, maybe we can't get hold of it. On the macro scale, if my refrigerator starts misbehaving, I can throw it out. If there is a little sensor in my blood made of artificial DNA, what if it self-assembles into something else? I think there's one thing that we should sort of understand, which is that, you know, yesterday's science fiction is tomorrow's reality. And you're talking about ingesting particles that might possibly integrate with our systems and stuff like that. But I just want to say that you should also think of uh, these kinds of technologies as, you know, when you go for magnetic resonance imaging, you 
uh, are injected with a stain, which then is leached out of the system. It's not something which sits in the body forever and ever. And I think that's a property of many biomolecules and biological uh, technologies that are based on biological scaffolds, that they can be degraded by the system uh, if you stick in the right molecular programs for that degradation. So what you're saying is the body naturally likes to tear DNA apart. And that's a natural sort of fail-safe mechanism. So the tearing apart of DNA can give rise to two things. It can either degrade it or it can give you an immune response. And if you can control both of them, then you have the basis of a very powerful way to interrogate living systems. Shona, you're a professor of biochemistry. Can you put it into context for us? You know, the one thought that I had when we were talking about, you know, DNA self-assembling in the body, and could you program DNA to do one thing, have it do something else, is that we should recognize that many biological processes that are just in nature, it's exactly the same stuff. I mean, and even many medical problems. I mean, we have types of cardiovascular disease that result because you have plaques that self-assemble, neurodegenerative diseases because we have plaques that self-assemble in the brain. So a lot of the phenomena that we're talking about putting to work, hopefully in good ways, those same phenomena are already present in nature. You're developing devices to make the diagnostic testing of a single drop of blood or urine much quicker without the need for complicated lab equipment. And at the heart of this are electronic chips with tiny amounts of gold and another metal, palladium. Can you tell us how this chip works? Sure. So we take things like silicon chips, we functionalize them with nanomaterials, and then we coat the nanomaterials with molecules that are able to specifically recognize other molecules in a sample. And so they're able to to bring that molecule to the surface of a chip And then we use electrical signals to have the device tell the user that the molecule has been detected. And so this is, it's a matter of measuring very small electrical signals and turning that into information about what's present in a a sample that's been taken from a patient. Um, And why the nanoparticles of gold and palladium? So the nanoparticles are there really as a, a material to support the recognition event. And the fact that they have very small dimensions helps them be much more effective in finding the molecules. And they're not just fast, they're also smart, aren't they? Distinguishing different strains of bacteria, including the ones that are resistant to antibiotics. That's right. And that's our using all of the genetic information that's out there that people have collected that tells you whether the piece of DNA that you're detecting belongs to one type of bacterium or another or one that has antibiotic resistance. And so we're leveraging the, the biology that's already out there. So it's quite a, this is quite a big practical difference, isn't it? If you're waiting for a blood test, you sure want to have it in minutes rather than a couple of days. Certainly. It could be critical. It could be absolutely critical. But the interesting thing is that people tend to think of nanotech as being very expensive to develop. But I think you've said that you're hoping that these devices, because they are so quick, that they could roll out and be used in developing countries. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Nanomaterials don't have to be expensive. I mean, that's one of the things about using nanoparticles of gold is that that's a very, very small amount of gold. And so using nanomaterials rather than bulk materials can be very cost-effective. Well, what do you think about that, Yumina, especially coming from Bangalore in India? So I'm, I'm really happy we brought the developing world into this discussion 
most of the time, you know, many people are actually illiterate. And so the challenge when they go to a doctor is to actually be able to deliver them a very fast diagnosis because that guy is not going to come back again the next day for another round of, you know, what do I have? So you have a very small window of time to be able to figure out what this guy has and to be able to prescribe the right antibiotic. And actually, if you look at it, a lot of antibiotic resistance uh, strains have actually emerged from the developing world where people have not actually completed their courses or taken the wrong antibiotic because the doctor has to usually prescribe on the basis of some heuristic information. And that's where I think this actually can have a huge impact. Uh, so I'm very excited about uh, Shana's work. What do you think about this, Benjamin? Because I think that quite a lot of people has, uh, had the feeling that the advances in biomedical science we're probably going to make medical treatment more personalized and targeted to the genetic character of individuals, which would be a good thing, but probably it'll be only available for elites and people in rich countries that it wouldn't be able to roll out because it would be a bit exclusive. But actually what we're talking about here is the complete opposite. Yes, it's complicated. You know, we're thinking about the Ebola Okay, so I mean, imagine how wonderful it would be to have some sort of mechanism at the airport, for example, to make sure very quickly before people get on planes whether or not something like this was, was spread on this as well. And at the same time, you know, part of the reason it spread is because there was such widespread distrust of the government and the medical community, you know, in Sierra Leone, East Sierra Leone in particular. In other words, no single technology by itself works to solve any of these problems. The way in which it works, whether it's successful or not successful, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, in many cases isn't determined by the technology itself. It's determined by the rest of the cultural, political, economic context in which that technology is used. But to your point of the um, personalized medicine, it may actually be inverse. And this goes to the question I think you were raising before about this work and privacy. It may very well be that it's the relatively disadvantaged those who are relatively unprivileged, who don't have or are unable to pay for privacy, are the ones whose genomes will be most monitored, most medicalized, most uh, intervened upon, as opposed to the other way around. That's an interesting thought. Let's, let's throw that to the audience. The future of medicine with the use of nanotechnology. What do you think about this? This gentleman in black. Graham Leggett from the uh, University of Sheffield in England. I actually think that um, these technologies can benefit lots of people and not just the wealthy elite. There have been some really exciting developments recently in low-cost portable technologies for diagnosis of disease. And there are real, you know, very exciting possibilities that these will benefit people in poor countries who don't have access to the kind of health care that we, we have in the West. So I hope the benefits will be quite widespread. Other people... What are your views on this? Yes, there's a lady here in blue. Catherine Marika, I'm a postdoctoral fellow at MIT. I think this is an amazing opportunity for the interface of information technology and nanotechnology. Just like we have now personalized computing, most people have a personal computer or a cell phone, and that interface or that cell phone or computer is your personal monitor or detector, and you have a nanoscale device that interfaces with that technology, I think it's an amazing opportunity for bridging the two technologies. Let's just focus for a moment on something that we haven't talked about quite so much, which is not just the size of the nanoscale, but also behavior. Because very small things don't behave in the same way they do at a normal scale, do they? Josh, can you give us some examples? Think of a marble. 
you know, one that you can hold in your hand. And if you try and whack that marble with something very, very small, like an electron or a photon, probably nothing is going to happen, or at least nothing that you can detect. But if you carve that marble up into a billion pieces, you've created a much greater surface area from that marble, and each of those billion pieces is now small enough to be affected either in terms of how it conducts heat or light or electricity when that electron or that photon whacks into it. And if those billion pieces are close enough to each other, there might be some sort of domino effect, whereas piece one knocks into piece two, and you have kind of this chain reaction that ripples through the entire field of what used to be a marble. Shauna, gold nanoparticles are not gold-colored. So if you have enough gold nanoparticles to be able to see them with your eye, they're actually red. And that's a, a great example of something just because it's nanostructured having you know, a very different property that you can actually see. And it has to do with the fact that gold nanoparticles, you know, they're down, the, the dimensions are starting to be the dimensions of, of wavelengths of light. And so light interacts with nanomaterials very differently than it interacts with bulk materials. What about you, Yumana? So my favorite example of this unusual surface area to volume ratio that you find in the nanoscale is sort of, um, if you take a polymer-deposited nanocomposite, okay, which is this marble, let's say, which has been made into small nanoparticles, and you take one something which will fit a teaspoonful of that material, okay, just a teaspoonful, and you calculate the surface area, it's the area of a football field, Okay, so that's 700 meters squared. Uh, the area of a football field contained in the volume of a teaspoon. Sean, I just wondered, how much is that we still need to learn about this at the nanoscale, this different Oh, behavior? there's so much to learn. I mean, we're hearing about new discoveries every hour that we sit through the sessions at this conference, and it's, I don't think there's any limit to what we still have to learn. Thank you all very much, and thank you too to our audience here in San Diego Shana Kelly, Yamuna Krishnan, Benjamin Bratton, and Josh Fishman. And it's goodbye from me and from all of us here. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com. And big development, we now have a Spanish-language website, www.scientificamerican.com slash Espanol. It features original content in Spanish in addition to some translations of Scientific American pieces that were first published in English. And we we pulled off a real coup. We got Debbie Ponchner to move from Costa Rica to come be the editor of our Spanish language website. I'll tell you a little bit about Debbie. I, I met Debbie when we were both night fellows together in the night science journalism fellowships at MIT in 2003. At the time, she was a science reporter for La Nacion. That's the newspaper of record for Costa Rica. Eventually, she became the founder and editor of the first daily science section in La Nacion, and more recently, she was the newspaper's managing editor and wrote its weekly science column. She was educated in Costa Rica and Spain. She's an award-winning science journalist, and we are so lucky to have her, and so I hope you'll 
check out our Spanish language site, www.scientificamerican.com slash Espanol. And follow us on Twitter where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam for Scientific American Science Talk. I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 